Beloved, hear God call us to worship this morning from Jeremiah chapter 32. God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Beloved, our God has given us all of his heart, all of his soul, and he has made us to be a people who first and foremost love him because he made us and created us in his image. One early church pastor uh, talked about sin as sin being disordered love. That is, that sin is when we love self above God and above everything else. And we are guilty of that. We are guilty of sin. We are guilty of loving self above everything else. But our God, in his love to us, shows us grace shows us grace by giving us his one and only son, Jesus. And it is in the blood of Jesus that we are forgiven of sin. And so we come to worship and we confess that we are guilty of loving self above God. But God in his grace to us has provided forgiveness through the blood of his son, Jesus. And so let's confess that together this morning. The confession will be on your screen and We will say this confession together and then we'll take a few moments to silently and more particularly come before our God and confess our sin to him and see his grace to us in Jesus. And so let's confess together this morning, beloved. Merciful God, in love you have ordered every step of our lives. We were created in your image to bring glory to you. All of life was worship, work, and rest. Our existence was rooted in covenant relationship with you. We broke this covenant for a self-defined life. Our rebellious hearts are drawn to find meaning, security, and purpose in temporary things. We are prone to look for security in money. We strive to find meaning in approval. We seek purpose in production, being needed, being good, being better. Our hearts are so hardened that we do not look for you. Our hearts are so affected by sin We are unable to make ourselves clean, but we praise you that your grace is powerful. Our hard hearts are no match for your grace. Your grace shows us that our sin hung from the cross. Your grace reveals to us that resurrection from the grave means our dead hearts are made alive. Your word teaches us that grace is a person. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for convincing us that Jesus' death and resurrection is good news. Because of Jesus, our past, present, and future are redeemed. In Jesus, our purpose, 
security, and meaning are sure. He is our living hope. All is gift. All is grace. Amen. Now let's take a few moments to quietly uh, come before our God and confess our sins more specifically. Maybe even think about what we just read together and see God's forgiveness to you in the blood of Jesus. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess all of these things in the hope of your mercy, which is fully and finally given to us in your one and only Son, Jesus, our Savior, our Rock, and our Redeemer. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Beloved of Christ, God wants you to hear his assurance of his grace, of his forgiveness to you, which has been bought in Jesus' blood. And it comes from Galatians chapter 2 this morning. Hear our assurance of God's grace to us. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Beloved, who loved us and gave himself for us. We are forgiven by the wounds of Christ, which heal us. And that frees us to declare what it is that Christ has done for us, to declare our faith together, to declare that God is reordering our hearts to love him, to love others, and to love the place where he has put us, which is absolutely rooted in what Christ has done for us. And so I will ask us the question, and then let's respond together by declaring our faith. Beloved of Christ, what is it that we believe about the work of Christ for us? Christ was crucified, died, and was buried for our sin. By his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us righteous before God. His resurrection is also a guarantee of our resurrection. Therefore, in this life we now live, Jesus has, by grace, changed our hearts to confess his name and present ourselves to him as living sacrifices. We are also free to flee the temptation of sin and run to Jesus. We are to live knowing that his blood speaks a better word than our sin. Our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sin and entering into eternal life. In the life to come, we will reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. We will fully experience the glory for which we were originally made. Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Jeremiah 31, but the verses we're going to look at this morning are uh, going to be on the screen for you. We're going to read Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And before I go into that passage and before I pray after the passage and then dive into the text, I want to give you just a little bit of background into Jeremiah. Uh, You remember we're walking through the Scriptures this year, looking at the story of Scripture, thinking through the four-part story of the Bible together. We've got threads, we've got 
loves. Remember all those things. We'll come back and repeat those in the weeks to come, but I've said them a lot, and so I'm giving you a little break from that. But just to remind you, we're going through the whole Bible this year together. Last week, uh, excuse me, Last week, John Paul preached from the book of Isaiah, and the book of Jeremiah was written about a hundred years after the book of Isaiah. So we're looking at the time frame roughly from 630 to 580 B.C., and what we find when you read the book of Jeremiah is that God's people are in exile. They had rebelled against God, and God brought the Babylonians to take his people out of the promised land and into captivity. They were in exile. And you might remember, because a lot of people know these verses, they've become very popular over the last few years, that while they were in exile, Jeremiah writes these words in Jeremiah 29, that God has a plan for his people, plans for hope, plans for good. And while they're in exile, God says, I have plans for you, not to do you harm, but for good and for a hope. Then not long after that, in the same chapter, God also encourages his people to pursue the welfare of the city where they are. They're in exile. They're in a place that doesn't follow the same God that they do, doesn't have the same customs that they do, has a very different way of life. And God says, yet in that exile, in that situation, pursue the good of the place where I have put you. For in your welfare, in their welfare, you will find your welfare. Pray and seek the good of the city. So not only that, but God gives us Jeremiah 31. So even though he tells, he ha- tells them that he has plans for them, we come to this passage in Jeremiah, which is for sure the most significant chapter in all of Jeremiah's book and all of the prophecy. And it's here that God tells his people that there's something better for them that's coming. The hope that they have is found in the new covenant that's coming. And as his people in exile looked forward to the fulfillment of the new covenant, today in the year 2020, we are living in the new covenant. We are the fulfillment of these words that I'm going to read for you this morning in Jeremiah 31. So here's the point that we're going to look at together. Um, The point is this. Jesus makes things better. Jesus makes things better. Now, I know that may sound a little general to you, um, but it's true. And I hope to show it to you from the passage. But I want you to know that the passage we're looking at today, we're going to take a deep dive into it. Uh, This is a passage that the greatest theological minds have thought about and wrestled with for way more than 500 years. And so we're going to look at this passage, and it may be a little bit more teachy than it than we normally sound when we teach on Sundays, uh, may be a little bit different from other weeks, but it's, it's the best I could do. And maybe the next time we come to this passage, I'll understand it better, and God will therefore enable me to package it in a different way. But just want you to know that on the front end, it may be a little bit different today than normal. So let's read the passage, Jeremiah 31. Listen to this. This is God's word. He's talking about us, even as he's talking about our forefathers in the faith. Listen to this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, 
though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Would you pray with me? We ask, Lord, that as we look at this passage together today, that you would indeed enable us to hear the voice of our shepherd. Lord Jesus, you have said that your sheep will hear your voice. So Holy Spirit, we long to hear the voice of our shepherd today. Teach us again and again and again that Christ is everything. And show us that Christ makes things better, even here from Jeremiah 31. For your glory, I pray, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. In the first church that I served in the western part of the state of North Carolina, uh, we would have a family meal every month, and all the families would bring food, and we would gather together after worship. We would set up tables and chairs, and, and we would eat a meal together and enjoy being together. One meal that we had, I sat across from uh, a young boy named Luke. He was about three years old, maybe three and a half years old, and there were other people at the table, but I was sitting directly across from Luke. I ate my food and talked with him and talked with others at the table. Luke finished his food. And once he finished his food, I grabbed his plate and mine and I took him to the trash can and threw him away and then came back to the table and Luke was still there and other people were still there and we were just talking. Other people were getting dessert and other things. And his mom, Luke's mom, came from behind Luke. He couldn't see her. He was facing me and she came from behind him and she had a plate And on that plate was a gigantic piece of chocolate cake. So she walked up behind Luke and she set down that plate right in front of him with that huge piece of cake. And he looked at that cake and his hand slapped the table and he looked up at his mom and he said, for me, for me. And I want you to know, Jeremiah 31 is inviting us to a renewed sense of grateful wonder. This passage is inviting us to have a renewed sense of grateful wonder at what God has given us. And again, the point is, Jesus makes things better. And we're going to start with Jesus makes the covenant better. So if you're here this morning and maybe you've never read the scriptures before, or maybe you have, or maybe the first time you heard of this idea of covenant was when we read this passage today. Let's think for a moment about what is a covenant. There are two components to a covenant. The first component of a covenant relationship is this, deep, intimate love. The first component of understanding the covenant idea is love. It's a deep love. It's an intimate love. It's not lust. It's not infatuation. It is genuine, unconditional love. The second component to a covenant is this. That the covenant, although it is unconditional and loving, it also has a business-like quality to it. 
meaning that the second component of understanding a covenant is that there are obligations and responsibilities and therefore consequences. So you see, the hope is that if you're in a covenant relationship, it can be a deeper, more satisfying, more intimate relationship than other relationships that aren't as deep, that aren't as committed. So the thought is, individually, if I am in this type of relationship, I will be a better person because I have pledged to unconditionally love and be loved, and I have pledged to follow obligations, and the, and the person I'm pledged to will also obligate themselves so that the relationship is deep and so that individually I grow more than I would have without this relationship. And together we grow more than we would have had we not been in that relationship. And I want you to know this idea of covenant, these two components of love and obligation and consequences, they've been around for a long time, all the way back in the beginning of time all the way back when God created Adam and Eve. You see, it's not as though God was just walking around and all of a sudden, Adam and Eve appeared out of nowhere. And God saw them and said, hey, what y'all doing? What are you doing here? How'd you get here? It's not as though Adam and Eve just appeared and God said to them, hey, I'm going to give you an instruction manual on how you are supposed to live. The relationship that God had with Adam and Eve was far deeper than that. God created them. God created us. And he created Adam and Eve to be who they were made to be. Meaning God made us, God made Adam and Eve to love him and love each other and to love the place. They were to be fruitful. They were to multiply. They were to fill the earth with the glory of God. Adam and Eve were to manage creation, name the animals, keep it, tend it, organize it, see that everyone and everything flourished. You see, God's plans for us from the beginning were deep and profound. And he gave us creative power to explore all that he has made us to be. And that didn't just happen with Adam and Eve. This idea of covenant continued with Noah and then with Abraham. And you might remember even beyond that with Moses at Mount Sinai and even John Paul preaching several weeks ago about David and being a king. This idea of the covenant is significant. As a matter of fact, to borrow the language that John Paul has used several weeks ago, covenant is the language of the four-part story. So if you want to understand what it means to be created, you have to understand the covenant. If you want to understand rebellion properly, it's situated within the covenant relationship. If you want to understand redemption, you have to understand the covenant. If you understand restoration, they're tied to the promises of the covenant. Covenant is the language of the four-part story. And what that means for me and you, if that sounds super abstract, what that means for me and you is this. We won't understand God as he is unless we understand covenant. 
We won't understand the world that we live in unless we understand covenant. We won't understand our jobs. We won't understand parenting. We will not understand singleness. We will not understand mission. We won't understand the Bible itself if we don't understand this idea of covenant. Well, that leads us to state something that is very obvious. So if you have had any exposure to the Bible at all, if you have had any exposure to the teachings of Scripture at all, if you've ever read any part of the Old Testament, you have probably noticed two things. One, God desires that his people obey. And God's people oftentimes pledge that they are going to obey. And God's people obey. And then they don't. Sound familiar? Sound like your life? Sounds like my life? And because God's people don't obey, there are consequences. You know, like ending up in exile because of their rebellion against God. It seems like when you read the Old Testament that God's people obey and then they don't. And then there are consequences. It seems like things are conditional. But the second thing that's obvious when you read the Old Testament and when you read the Bible itself is this. That God is absolutely faithful to his word. That God always keeps his promises. That God loves his people. And it doesn't matter how far they wander from him. It doesn't matter how violent their expression of rebellion is. God always goes after his people and brings them back. God's love is unmistakably unconditional. And that means if you read those, the Old Testament and notice those two things that are undeniable, it means that we have to think for a few minutes about how in the world do we process that. If we read the scriptures and it looks like things are conditional, we read the scriptures and it looks like God's love is unconditional, we have to process that. What do we do with that? Because you see, how we process those two truths indicates what we think of God. It informs what we think of ourselves. It informs what we think about life that we're living in reality and the message of the Bible itself. So I know for a very, very, very few of you, very few, you were probably taught the unconditional love of God from the Old Testament. Probably there's a few of you out there that were taught that. But my hunch is the vast majority of us, the vast majority of you, we're taught that relationship with God is conditional. Almost exclusively taught that. And what that has meant in your life and what it has meant in our lives is this. That we're always looking for what we need to do. It means when we study the Bible, it's always boiled down to action items that have indicated I need to do this. I need to do that. It means that we've always been looking for some kind of blessing that we could get if we believed enough, 
or did the right thing or didn't do the wrong thing. It means that we're always looking for what to do because we're wanting blessing. And the other side of that coin is that there's an awful lot of fear that would well up on the inside. That there's this fear that maybe I'm not doing what God wanted me to do. Or maybe something's wrong and I'm not even aware of it. You see, to be taught that the relationship with God is exclusively conditional means that oftentimes we are evaluating what God thinks of us based upon circumstances. It means that our whole outlook on life and life with God is through the lens of circumstances, not God's heart. And what that means is that at our core, whether we could articulate it this way or not, deep, deep down, we really believe that good people get good lives and bad people get bad lives. And when you start working that out, if you've been taught the scriptures in that way, you've probably even been taught that people were saved differently in the Old Testament than they are now. That God actually has a plan for ethnic Jews. And that plan is different from the plan that he has for us. Maybe you've been taught that. Well, that leads to this. If you think about what a covenant is, then we think together and we have thought together about two obvious things that you get when you read the scriptures. And then how in the world do we process that? That leads all of us to this summarizing question. So is, is our relationship with God conditional or unconditional? Is the covenant itself, is it conditional or unconditional? Is the new covenant that God writes about here in Jeremiah 31, is it conditional or unconditional? And the answer is yes. Yes. Our relationship with God is both conditional and unconditional. You see, Jesus changes everything. He makes it better. So, are there conditions for following God? Absolutely. And the beauty is that Jesus has done everything for you and for me. Jesus has fulfilled every single obligation that you and I are required to fulfill. He has done it all. And he has endured the consequences of disobeying on the cross so that through his life and through his death and through his resurrection, he has met every obligation for me, for me, for you. And is the love of God unconditional? Yes. Jesus, in fulfilling all of the obligations personally, like in the flesh, perfectly thought, word, and deed, 
for all of his life, perpetually. Jesus is demonstrating the love of God, the unconditional love of God for us as we read about him, as he lived this life in this world. He showed us the unconditional love of God. And what that means is that every single time we think about the cross and every single time we read the scriptures, we ought to recognize that they're all telling us about Jesus. And every time we can say, for me, for you. And that does nothing to diminish how we live our lives with God in following him, in obeying him, because you see, our obedience never ever gets God's attention or gets his love or keeps his love. Our obedience, our following him, illustrates and exemplifies that we already have the love of God. There was a man that wrote a couple hundred years ago this poem that's turned into a song. And it, and it goes something like this. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty to choice. Well, that leads me to this question. Here's the final one of the day. So how can we today and moving forward how can we have a renewed sense of grateful wonder at what God has given us? How can we have that renewed sense of grateful wonder? Let me give you three things. The first one is this. If you desire to have a renewed sense of grateful wonder at what God has given us, try as best you can to imagine living in the Old Testament. Try. Try to imagine yourself living in the Old Testament and how you would experience the gospel, how you would experience the grace of God and the unconditional love of God. You know, there were three travel feasts a year. And if you were to go to those feasts, if you were to go to Jerusalem, if you were to participate in the biggest feast of the year, to celebrate what God has done and to gather with his people, you would enter Jerusalem and you would have to provide animals to be sacrificed for your sin. You might remember when we looked together at Leviticus 16 that the priest would come out and offer sacrifices for himself and for the people and then he would place his hands on the scapegoat as if to transfer our sin to the head, to that goat. And then the goat would run off in the distance and, and, and never be seen again. You might remember we talked about some of this at, with Leviticus 16. And you might remember that if you can put yourself in that situation, if you can put yourself in what it would be like to experience the gospel in the Old Testament, you might find as you participated in those feasts and watched the sacrifices, you might know that what happens between us and God and what God has done is very costly. That it costs your family money to provide an animal to be sacrificed 
that had to have specific um, qualities to it. You also would recognize that in order for us to know the love of God, something had to be substituted in our place, sacrificed in our place. You would know that all that was going on had deep, deep meaning. But you know what, beloved? It wasn't personal. What I mean by that is this. When you would go to celebrate those feasts and see the sacrifices that were made for you, when you watch those animals being sacrificed for you, you would know in your mind, they didn't know my name. But beloved Jesus does. When he lived life for you, perfect obedience, and endured the consequences that you deserve and that I deserve, he knew your name. He knows my name. Those animals never knew our names. And beyond that, you would have to repeat the same thing over and over. But when Christ has come, when Christ came, his sacrifice was once and for all done. And so when you read back through these verses of Jeremiah 31, when the new covenant comes, God talks about how he would remember their sins no more. Well, that's something he promised in the Old Testament. For sure, that's nothing brand new. But with the coming of Christ, it meant that Christ's death and resurrection brought finality to God's forgiveness. We don't have to continue to offer sacrifices over and over. It's done. And when God says that he writes the law on our hearts, it didn't mean that God's people didn't have his law on their hearts. It's how we were created. We were created knowing the law of God. It's written deep within us. But because of Christ, what Christ has done means that now we think about how the law of God is within and living in the Old Testament, living in the sacrificial system, we would always have thought about the law of God as written on stone tablets. Yes, it was on our heart, but we would always think about God's word being eternal and written on stone. But now in Jesus, he makes things better. So if you want to have a renewed sense of grateful wonder, Put yourself back in Old Testament times and then remember what Christ has done and that it's final. It is finished. The second thing is this. Read the Bible with fresh expectation. You know, when God talks about the new covenant here, I was talking with Jenny about this this week and to borrow a phrase from her, um, she said this, something to this effect. New doesn't mean opposite. When God says, I have a new covenant, he doesn't mean that it's opposite. New doesn't mean that the older is not sufficient. New doesn't mean that the older lacks power. Think of it this way. I want you, if you're 60 or older, or maybe 55 or older, those of you that are old enough to remember a black and white TV, how about that? 
I want you to imagine your favorite show, whatever it is, favorite movie, favorite show, whatever it is. Do you remember what it was like to watch that favorite show on a black and white TV? Do you remember what it's like to watch that favorite show, that favorite movie on a color TV? Have you ever watched that favorite show in your brand new high def LED 4K TV? The movie's the same, the show's the same. But what you have now is so much clearer and crisper. It's like you get to see more and understand more of what is going on. For those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about, about black and white TV and all that, I want you to think about the time in your life in which you used to have headphones. Remember that? And then recently in the last 10 or so, 15 years, they had these things that you would get with your phone called ear pods. And you'd put in these earbuds and you could hear music. And then more recently, there are AirPods. And then even more recently, you have the noise-canceling AirPods. I want you to imagine listening to your favorite song. How much better does it sound with the noise-canceling AirPods? It's incredible. That's what's happening with the coming of Christ That's what's happening. He's adding depth and color to all that God has been doing. It's just more tangible. Thirdly and finally, if you want to have a renewed sense of grateful wonder at what God has given you, grateful wonder is always connected to Jesus, just to make that absolutely explicit. Now, one of the verses that we didn't read in Jeremiah 31 is Jeremiah 31, 15. So if you want a renewed sense of grateful wonder, connect deeply to Jesus. In Jeremiah 31, 15, Jeremiah the prophet picks out a story of Rachel's weeping and Rachel's tears. If you look at verse 15, it says, Rachel weeps. She laments because her sons are no more. You see, the first time that Rachel wept was found in Genesis 35. She was giving birth, and she knew that she was going to die giving birth to a son. And as her son was born, she named him. She named him son of my sorrows, and then she died. It's as if she died while weeping. And her husband comes along, and she immediately renames her son. And you see, Jeremiah takes the idea of Rachel's tears, and he uses it as a metaphor so that all of us that have experienced loss, grief, living in a broken world, injustices, being overwhelmed with what's going on in life. Rachel's tears are a metaphor for that. And they're applied to God's people here in Jeremiah 31. They're living in exile, and Rachel is weeping still. The last time Rachel's tears are mentioned, we find it at the birth of Jesus. You see, when Jesus was born, Jesus was the ultimate Rachel. 
He would weep for his people. And he would die so that you and I would be reborn. He would die so that our hearts would be born again. He would die to guarantee that our soul would experience transformation and life with God. His death brought about our lives. And that's why in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew says at the birth of Christ, that this prophecy of Jeremiah, speaking of Rachel's tears, is fulfilled. And what that means for me and you, beloved, is not only is the law of God written on our hearts, not only is God finally removed our sins in Christ, but in the last verse, verse 34 of Jeremiah 31, this is the future. That the day is coming in which we will no longer have to tell others about God. We no longer will have to instruct people and help them understand who God is. The day is coming in which the greatest to the least will all know the Lord. Meaning the day is coming because of Jesus' birth and death and resurrection. That he's coming back to make all things new. And when that happens, we will have the literal fulfillment of everything that God has promised his people in exile in Jeremiah 31 that we're living in now. And beloved, you can look at that and say, for me, for me, it's true. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you would give us such good words to think about and ponder here in Jeremiah 31. We ask that you would renew us with a sense of grateful wonder at what you have given us. Remind us afresh that Jesus makes things better. And we thank you, Jesus, that the day is coming in which all things will be made new. Help us to fulfill our callings this week and love our families and, and enjoy what you have for us this week, knowing that you will be with us. For that has been your promise from the beginning, that you will be our God and we will be your people. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I know that there may be some of you, maybe a lot of you, that very rarely experience blessing. I know for some of you, it may, it may have been a long time since you've blessed someone else and loved on them. And I want you to know when we gather for worship, before we leave, God gives his blessing to us because he always knows how to bless his people. And he blesses us every single week so that we would then in turn bless others because of what he is doing in us. So receive this blessing from your God and know that you may not find much blessing anywhere else, 
but you will always find blessing from your God because of Jesus. Listen to this. The Lord your God is going to bless you, and he is also going to keep you. This week, his smile is upon you, and he will be gracious to you. And in the age to come forever and ever, his presence will be with us. His presence is with us now. And one day he will bring shalom. It's true because our Christ is alive. Live like you believe this this week for his glory. Amen. Go in his peace.